Okay, hey guys. Um, so I don't really know what I'm doing or how this is gonna go, but I'm gonna try to read out loud to you guys. Um, this is The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. Um, forgive me if I mess up or embarrass myself. We'll find out. My professor did one of these for us and it was really cute and she even added music in between each chapter. So maybe I can figure that out and we can be like this elite, really cool squadron. Um, yeah, I guess we'll find out. So, chapter one, April 9th, 1995, The Oregon Coast. If I have learned anything in this life, long life of mine, it is this. In love, we find out who we want to be. In war, we find out who we are. Today's young people want to know everything about everyone. They think talking about a problem will solve it. I come from a quieter generation. We understand the value of forgetting the lure of reinvention. Lately, though, I find myself thinking about the war in my past, about the people I lost. Lost. It makes it sound as if I misplaced my loved ones, perhaps I left them where they don't belong, and then turned away, too confused to retrace my steps. They are not lost, nor are they in a better place. They are gone. As I approach the end of my years, I know that grief, like regret, settles into our DNA and remains forever a part of us. I have aged in the months since my husband's death and my diagnosis. My skin is the crinkled appearance of wax paper that someone has tried to flatten and reuse. My eyes fail me often, in the darkness, when headlights flash, when rain falls. It is unnerving this new unreliability in my vision. Perhaps that's why I find myself looking backward. The past has a clarity I can no longer see into the present. I want to imagine there will be peace when I am gone, that I will see of the people, all of the people I have loved and lost, at least that I will be forgiven. I know better, though, don't I? My house, named the Peaks by the lumber baron who built it more than 100 years ago, is for sale. I'm preparing to move because my son thinks I should. He is trying to take care of me, to show me how much he loves me in this difficult, in the most difficult of times, and so I put up with his controlling ways. What do I care where I die? That is the point, really. It no longer matters where I live. I am boxing up the Oregon beachside life I settled into nearly 50 years ago. There is not much I want to take with me, but there is one thing. I reach for the hanging handle that controls the attic steps. The stairs unfold from the ceiling like a gentleman extending his hand. The flimsy stairs wobble beneath my feet as I climb into the attic, which smells of must and mold. A single hanging light bulb swings overhead. I pull the cord. It is like being in the hold of an old steamship. Wide wooden planks panel the walls. Cobwebs turn the creases silver and hang in skeins. Skeins? Skeins. S-K-E-I-N-S. I don't know what that means. So they hang in skeins from the indentations between the blanks. The ceiling is so steeply pitched that I can stand upright only in the center of the room. I see the rocking chair I used when my grandchildren were young, then an old crib and a ratty-looking rocking horse set on rusty springs, and the chair my daughter was refinishing when she got sick. Boxes are tugged along, tucked along the wall, marked Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, Halloween, serveware, sports. In those boxes are the things I don't use much anymore, but can't bear to part with. For me, admitting that I won't decorate a tree for Christmas is giving up. And even and I've never been good at letting go. Tucked in the corner is what I am looking for. An ancient steamer trunk covered in travel stickers. With effort, I drag the heavy trunk to the center of the attic. Directly beneath the hanging light, I kneel beside it, but the pain in my knees is piercing, so I slide onto my backside. For the first time in 30 years, I lift the trunk's lid. The top tray is full of baby memorabilia, 
tiny shoes, ceramic hand molds, crayon drawings populated by stick figures and smiling sons, report cards, dance recital pictures. I lift the tray from the trunk and set it aside. The mementos in the bottom of the trunk are in a messy pile. Several faded leather-bound journals, a packet of aged postcards tied together with a blue satin ribbon, a cardboard box bent in one corner, a set of slim books of poetry by Julian Rosignol, and a shoebox that holds hundreds of black-and-white photographs. On top is a yellowed, faded piece of paper. My hands are shaking as I pick it up. It is a carte d'identité. Um, I think that might be his French. Uh, I don't know what it means either. Oh, just kidding. It's going to tell us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. It is a carte d'identité. An identity card. Free from, from, oh gosh. It is a carte d'identité. An identity card from the war. I see the small passport-sized photo of a young woman. Juliet. Her Gervais. Her boss. It's G-E-R-V-A-I-S-E. I'm still going with the fact that it's French, so if anyone knows French and how to say that, let me know, and then I can try to be better for the next one. So I see the small passport-sized photo of a young woman, Juliet and her base. Mom? I hear my son on the creaking wooden steps, footsteps that match my heartbeats. Has he called me out to me before? Mom, you shouldn't be up here. Shit, the steps are unsteady. He comes to stand beside me. One fall and... I touch his pant leg, shake my head softly. I can't look up. Don't, is all I can say. He kneels, then sits. I can smell his aftershave, something subtle and spicy, and also a hint of smoke. He has sneaked a cigarette outside, a habit he gave up decades ago and took up again at my recent diagnosis. There is no reason to voice my disapproval. He is a doctor. He knows better. My instinct is to toss the card into the trunk and slam the lid down, hiding it again. It's what I have done all my life. Now I'm dying. Not quickly, perhaps, but not slowly either and I feel compelled to look back on my life. Mom, you're crying. Am I? I want to tell him the truth, but I can't. It embarrasses and shames me, this failure. At my age, I should not be afraid of anything, certainly not my own past. I say only, I want to take this trunk. It's too big. I'll repack the things you want into a smaller box. I smile at his contempt attempt to control me. I love you, and I am sick again. And for these reasons, I have let you push me around, but I am not dead yet. I want this trunk with me. What can you possibly need in it? It's just our artwork and other junk. If I had told him the truth long ago, or had danced and drunk and sung more, maybe he would have seen me instead of a dependable, ordinary mother. He loves a version of me that is incomplete. I always thought it was what I wanted. To be loved and admired. Now I think perhaps I'd like to be known. This think of this as my last request. I can see what he wants to tell me not I can see that he wants to tell me not to talk that way, but he's afraid his voice will catch. He clears his throat. You've beaten it twice before, you'll beat it again. We both know this isn't true. I am unsteady and weak. I can neither sleep nor eat without the help of medical science. Of course I will. I just want to keep you safe. I smile. Americans can be so naive. Once I shared his optimism, I thought the world was safe. But that was a long time ago. Who is Juliet Hervais? Gervais, Julian says, and it shocks me a little to hear that name from him. I close my eyes, and in the darkness that smells of mildew and bygone lives, my mind casts back. A line thrown across years and continents, against my will, or maybe in tandem with it. Who knows anymore? I remember. Chapter 2, and there's a quote before this chapter starts, and the quote is, The lights are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Sir Edward Grey on World War I. 
August 1939, France. Vianne Moriac left the cool stucco walled kitchen and stepped out into her front yard. On this beautiful summer morning in the Loire Valley, everything was in bloom. White sheets flopped in the breeze and roses tumbled like laughter along the ancient stone wall that hid her property from the road. A pair of industrious bees buzzed among the blooms. From far away, she heard the chugging purr of a train and then the sweet sound of a little girl's laughter. Sophie. Vianne smiled. Her eight-year-old daughter was probably running through the house, making her father dance, a- dance attendance on her as they readied for their Saturday picnic. Your daughter's a tyrant, Antoine. Mm, Antoine? Antoine? It's like if it was Marie Antoinette without the et part, so I'm going to go Antoine. Antoine said, appearing in the doorway. He walked toward her, his pomaded hair glinting back in the sunlight. He'd been working on his furniture this morning, sanding a chair that was already as soft as satin, and a fine layer of wood dust peppered his face and shoulders. He was a big man, tall and broad-shouldered, with a rough face and a dark stubble that took constant effort to keep from becoming a beard. He slipped an arm around her and pulled her close. I love you, V. I love you, too. It was the truest fact of the world. She loved everything about this man. His smile, the way he mumbled in his sleep and laughed after a sneeze and sang opera in the shower. She'd fallen in love with him 15 years ago on the school play yard before she'd even, know what love, she'd even known what love was. He was her first everything. First kiss, first love, first lover. Before him, she'd been a skinny, awkward, anxious girl given to stuttering when she got scared, which was often. A motherless girl. You will be the adult now, her father had said to Vianne as they walked up to this very house for the first time. She'd been 14 years old, her eyes swollen from crying, her grief unbearable. In an instant, this house had gone from being the family's summer house to a prison of sorts. Maman had lost, had been dead. Is that also, I'm assuming that's her mom. Again, the French is lost on me. I don't know how you say mom in French, but we're going to just go with Maman. Whatever. Maman had been dead less than two weeks when Papa gave up on being a father. See, I said that weird too. Papa? Is it just Papa? I don't know why I said it like Papa. I don't know what I'm doing. Maman had been dead less than two weeks and Papa... See, I did it again. Papa. 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 Maman had been dead less than two weeks when Papa gave up on being a father. Upon their arrival here, he'd not held her hand or rested a hand on her shoulder or even offered her a handkerchief to dry her her tears. But, but... I'm just a girl, she'd said. Not anymore. She looked down at her younger sister, Isabel, who still sucked her thumb at four and had no idea what was going on. Isabel kept asking when Maman was coming home. When the door opened, a tall, thin woman with a nose like a water spigot and eyes as small and dark as raisins appeared. These are the girls, the woman had said. Papa nodded. They will be no trouble. It had happened so fast. Vian hadn't really understood. Papa dropped off his daughters like soiled laundry and left them with a stranger. The girls were so far apart in age as if it, it was as if they were from different families. Vianne had wanted to comfort Isabel, meant to, but Vianne had been in so much pain it was impossible to think of anyone else, especially a child as willful and impatient and, and, impatient and loud as Isabel. Vianne still remembered those first days here, Isabel shrieking and Madame spanking her. Vianne had pleaded with her sister, saying again and again, Mon Dieu, Isabel, <laughs> quit screeching, just do as she bids. But even at four, Isabel had been unmanageable. Vianne had been undone by all of it. The grief for her dead mother, the pain of her father's abandonment, the sudden change in their circumstances, and Isabel's cloying, needy loneliness. It was Antoine who'd saved Vianne. That first summer after Maman's death, the two of them had become inseparable. With him, Vianne had found an escape. By the time she was 16, she was pregnant. At 17, she was married and the mistress of Le Hardin. Two months later, she had a miscarriage and she lost herself for a while. 
There was no other way to put it. She'd crawled into her grief and cocooned it around her, unable to care about anything or anyone. Certainly not a needy, wailing sister. But that was old news. Not the sort of memories she wanted on a beautiful day like today. She leaned against her husband as her daughter ran up to them, announcing, I'm ready, let's go. Well, Antoine said, grinning, the princess is ready, and so we must move. Vianne smiled as she went back into the house and retrieved her hat from the hook by the door. A strawberry blonde with porcelain-thin skin and sea-blue eyes, she always protected herself from the sun. By the time she'd settled the wide-brimmed straw hat in place and collected her lacy gloves and picnic basket, Sophie and Antoine were already outside the gate. Vianne joined them on the dirt, joined them on the dirt road in front of their home. It was barely wide enough for an automobile. Beyond it stretched acres of hayfields, the green here and there studded with red poppies and blue cornflowers. Forests grew in pastures. In this corner of the Lower Valley, I also don't have to that's how you say it. It's L-O-I-R-E. I'm going to say Lower. In this corner of the Lower Valley, fields were more likely to be growing hay than grapes. Although less than two hours from Paris by train, it felt like a different world altogether. Few tourists visited, even in the summer. Now and then, an automobile rumbled past, or a bicyclist, or an ox-driven cart, but for the most part, they were alone on the road. They lived nearly a mile from Caravieu, Caraval, Caravois, I don't know. A town of less than a thousand souls, she was known mostly as a, stop, as a stopping point on the pilgrimage of Station the Arc. There was no industry in town, and few jobs, except for, the, except for those of the airfield that was the pride of Caravel. They, the only kind, only one of its kind for miles. In town, narrow cobblestone streets would wound through ancient limestone buildings that leaned clumsily against one another. Mortar crumbled from stone walls, ivy had the decay that lay beneath, unseen but always felt. The village had been cobbled together piecemeal. Crooked streets, uneven steps, blind alleys, over hundreds of years. Colors enlivened the stone buildings. Red awnings ribbed in black metal, ironwork balconies decorated with geraniums and terracotta planters. Everywhere, there was something to attempt the eye. A display case of pastel macaroons, rough willow baskets filled with cheese and ham and sauce, crates of colorful tomatoes and aubergines and cucumbers. The cafes were full on this sunny day. Men sat around metal tables, drinking coffee and smoking hand-rolled brown cigarettes and arguing loudly. A typical day in Carabao. Monsieur Lachoa was sweeping the street in front of his salottery. And Madame Clonet was washing the window of her hat shop, and a pack of adolescent boys was strolling through town, shoulder to shoulder, kicking bits of trash and passing a cigarette back and forth. At the end of town, they turned toward the, toward the river. At a flat, grassy spot along the shore, Vianne set down her basket and spread on, out a blanket in the shade of a chestnut tree. From the picnic basket, she withdrew a crusty baguette, a wedge of rich double cream cheese, two apples, some slices of paper-thin bayon ham, and a bottle of Bollinger 36. She poured her husband a glass of champagne and sat down beside him as Sophie ran toward the riverbank. The day passed in a haze of sunshine warmed contentment. They talked and laughed and shared their picnic. It wasn't until late in the day when Sophie was off with her fishing pole and Antoine was making their daughter a crown of daisies that he said, Hitler will suck us all into this war soon. War. It was all anyone could talk about these days, and Vianne didn't want to hear it, especially not on this lovely summer day. She tented a hand, crossed her eyes, and stared at her daughter. Beyond the river, the green lower valley cultivated with care and precision. There was no fences, there were no fences, no boundaries, just miles of rolling green fields and patches of trees in the occasional stone house or barn. Tiny white blossoms floated like bits of cotton in the air. She got to her feet and clapped her hands. Come, Sophie, it's time to go home. You can't ignore this, Vianne. Should I look for trouble? Why? You are here to protect us. Smiling, too brightly perhaps, 
she packed up the picnic and gathered her family and led them back to the dirt road. In less than 30 minutes, they were at the sturdy wooden gate of Lehardine, the stone country house that had been in her family for 300 years. Aged to a dozen shades of gray, it was a two-story house with blue shuttered windows that overlooked the orchard. Ivy climbed up the two chimneys and covered the bricks beneath. Only seven acres of the original parcel was left. The other 200 had been sold off over the course of two centuries as her family's fortune dwindled. Seven acres was plenty for Vianne. She couldn't imagine needing more. Vianne closed the door behind them. In the kitchen, copper and cast iron pots and pans hung from an iron rack above the stove. Lavender and rosemary and thyme hung in drying bunches from the exposed timber beams of the ceiling. A copper sink, green with age, was big enough to bathe a small dog in. The plaster on the interior walls was peeling here and there to reveal paint from years gone by. The living room was, was an eclectic mix of furniture and fabrics, tapestries to tay, albusan rugs, antique Chinese porcelain, chintz, and toil. Some of the paintings on the wall were excellent, perhaps important, and some were amateurish. It had the jumbled, cobbled-together look of lost money and bygone taste, a little shabby but comfortable. She paused in the salon, glancing through the glass-paned doors that led to the backyard, where Antoine was pushing Sophie on the swing he'd made for her. Vianne hung her hat gently on the hook of the door and retrieved her apron, tying it in place. While Sophie and Antoine playing outside, played outside, Vianne cooked supper. She wrapped a pink pork tenderloin in thick-cut bacon, tied it in twine, and browned it in hot oil. While the pork roasted in the oven, she made the rest of the meal. At 8 o'clock, right on time, she called everyone to supper and couldn't help smiling at the thundering of feet and the chatter of conversation and the squealing of chair legs scraping across the floor as they sat down. Sophie sat at the head of the table, wearing the crown of daisies Antoine had made her for her at the riverbank. Vianne sat, sat on the platter, and delicious fragrance wafted upward, roasted pork and crusty bacon and apples glazed in a rich wine sauce, resting on a bed of brown potatoes. Beside it was a bowl of fresh peas, swim, swimming in buttered seasoned, swimming in butter seasoned with tarragon from the garden. And of course, there was the baguette Vianne had made yesterday morning. As always, Sophie talked all through supper. She was like her Tante Isabel in that way, a girl who couldn't hold her tongue. When at last they came to dessert, Ile Flotante, islands of toasted meringue floating in a rich cream anglaise, there was a satisfied silence around the table. Well, Vianne said at last, pushing her half empty dessert plate away, it's time to do the dishes. Ah, maman, Sophie whined. No whining, Antoine said, not at your age. Vianne and Sophie went into the kitchen, as they did each night, to their stations. Vianne at the deep copper sink, Sophie at the stone counter, and began washing and drying the dishes. Vianne could smell the sweet, sharp scent of Antoine's after-supper cigarette wafting through the house. Papa didn't laugh at a single one of my stories today, Sophie said as Vianne placed the dishes back in their rough wooden rack that hung on the wall. Something is wrong with him. No laughter? Well, certainly that is cause for alarm. He's worried about the war. The war. Again. Vianne shooed her daughter out of the kitchen. Upstairs in Sophie's bedroom, Vianne sat on the double bed, listening to her daughter chatter as she put on her pajamas and brushed her teeth and got into bed. Vianne leaned down to kiss her goodnight. I'm scared, Sophie said. Is war coming? Don't be afraid, Vianne said. Papa will protect us. But even as she said it, she remembered another time when her maman had said to her, Don't be afraid. It was when her own father had gone off to war. Sophie looked unconvinced. But, but nothing. There was nothing to worry about. Now go to sleep. She kissed her daughter again, letting her lips linger on the little girl's cheek. Vianne went down the stairs and headed for the backyard. Outside, the night was sultry. The air smelled of jasmine. She found out Antoine sitting in one of the iron cafe chairs out on the grass. His legs stretched out. His body slumped uncomfortably to one side. She came up beside him, put a hand on his shoulder. He exhaled smoke and took another long drag of the cigarette. Then he looked up at her. 
In the moonlight, his face appeared pale and shadowed, almost unfamiliar. He reached into the pocket of his vest and pulled out a piece of paper. I have been mobilized, Van, along with most men between 18 and 35. Mobilized? But we are not at war. I don't... I am to report for duty on Tuesday. But... but... you're a postman. He held her gaze and suddenly she couldn't breathe. I am a soldier now, it seems. Chapter 3. Vian knew something of war, not its clash and clatter and smoke and blood, perhaps, but the aftermath. Though she had born, been born in peacetime, her earliest memories were of the war. She remembered watching her mom cry as she said goodbye to Papa. She remembered being hungry and always being cold. But most of all, she remembered how different her father was when he came home, how he limped inside and was silent. That was when he began drinking and keeping to himself and ignoring his family. After that, she remembered doors slamming shut, arguments erupting and disappearing into clumsy silences, and her parents sleeping in different rooms. The father who went off to war was not the one who came home. She had tried to be loved by him. More important, she had tried to keep loving him. But in the end, one was as impossible as the other. In the years since he shipped her off to Caribou, Vianne had made her own life. She sent her father Christmas and birthday cards, but she never received one in return, and they rarely spoke. What was there left to say? Unlike Isabel, who seemed incapable of letting go, Vianne understood and accepted that when Maman died, their family had been irreparably broken. He was a man who simply refused to be a father to his children. I know how war scares you, Antoine said. The Maginot line will hold, she said, trying to sound convincing. You'll be home by Christmas. The Maginot line was miles and miles of concrete walls and obstacles and weapons that had been constructed along the German border after the Great War to protect France. The Germans couldn't breach it. Antoine took her in his arms. The scent of jasmine was intoxicating, and she knew suddenly, certainly, that from now on, whenever she smelled jasmine, she would remember this goodbye. I love you, Antoine Mauriac, and I expect you to come home to me. Later, she couldn't remember them moving into the house, climbing the stairs, lying down in bed, undressing each other. She remembered only being naked in his arms, lying beneath him as he made love to her in a way he had never had before, with frantic, searching kisses and hands that seemed to want to tear her apart even as they held her together. You're stronger than you think you are, V, he said afterward, when they lay quietly in each other's arms. I'm not, she whispered too quietly for her to him for him to hear. The next morning, Vianne wanted to keep Antoine in bed all day, maybe even convince him that they should pack their bags and run like thieves in the night. But where would they go? War hung all over all over all of Europe. By the time she finished making breakfast and doing the dishes, a headache throbbed at the base of her school. You seem sad, Milan, Sophie said. How can I be sad on gorgeous on a gorgeous summer's day when we are going to visit our best friends? Vianne smiled a bit too brightly. It wasn't until she was out the front door and standing beneath one of the apple trees in the front yard that she realized she was barefoot. Maman, Sophie said impatiently. I'm coming, she said, and as she followed Sophie through the front yard, past the old do dovecote, now a gardening shed, and the empty barn. Sophie opened the back gate and ran into the well-tended neighboring yard, toward a small stone cottage with blue shutters. Sophie knocked once, got no answer, and went inside. Sophie, Vianne said sharply, but her admonishment fell on deaf ears. Manners were unnecessary at one's best friend's house, and Rachel de Champlain had been Vianne's best friend for 15 years. They'd met only a month after Papa had so ignominiously dropped his children off at Le Hardin. They'd been a pair back then. Vianne, slight and pale and nervous, and Rachel, as tall as the boys, with eyebrows that grew faster than a lie and a voice like a foghorn. Outsiders, both of them, until they met. 
They'd become inseparable in school and stayed friends in all the years since. They'd gone to university together and both had become school teachers. They'd even been pregnant at the same time. Now they taught in side-by-side classrooms at the local school. Rachel appeared in the open doorway, holding her newborn son, Ariel. A look passed between the women. It was the f- everything they felt and feared. The aunt followed her friend into a small, brightly lit interior that was as neat as a pin. A vase full of wildflowers graced the rough wooden trestle table flanked by mismatched chairs. In the corner of the dining room was a leather valise, and sitting on top of it was the brown felt fedora that Rachel's husband, Mark, favored. Rachel went into the kitchen for a small crockery plate full of cannellis. Then the woman headed outside. In the school, in the small backyard, roses grew along a pivot hedge. A table and four chairs sat unevenly on a stone patio. Antique lanterns hung from the branches of a chestnut tree. Vianne picked up a cannelle and took a bite, savoring the vanilla-rich cream center and a crispy, slightly burned-tasting exterior. She sat down. Rachel sat down across from her with the baby asleep in her arms. Silence seemed to expand between them and fill the f- their f- with their fears and misgivings. I wonder if he'll know his father, Rachel said as she looked down at her baby. They'll be changed, Vianne said, remembering. Her father had been in the Battle of Somme, in which more than three-quarters of a million men had lost their lives. Rumors of German atrocities had come home with the few who arrived. Rachel moved the infant to her shoulder, patted his back soothingly. Mark is no good at changing diapers, and Ari loves to sleep in our bed. I guess that'll be all right now. Leanne felt a smile start. It was a little thing, this joke, but it helped. Antoine's snoring is a, is a pain in the backside. I should get some good sleep. And we can have poached eggs for supper. Only half the laundry, she said, but then her voice broke. I'm not strong enough for this, Rachel. Of course you are. We'll get through it together. Before I met Antoine, Rachel waved a hand dismissively. I know, I know. You were as skinny as a branch. You stuttered when you got nervous and you were allergic to everything. I know. I was there. But that's all over now. You'll be strong. You know why? Why? Rachel's smile faded. I know I'm big, statuesque, as they like to say when they're selling me brassiers and stockings, but I feel undone by this fee. I'm going to need to lean on you sometimes, too. Not with all my weight, of course. So we can't both fall apart at the same time. Voila, Rachel said. Our plan. Should we open a bottle of cognac now or gin? It's 10 o'clock in the morning. You're right, of course. A friend 75. On Tuesday morning, when Vienna woke, sunlight poured through the window and glazing the exposed timbers. Antoine sat in the chair by the window, a walnut rocker he'd made during Vienna's second pregnancy. For years, that empty rocker had mocked them. The miscarriage years, as she thought of them now. Desolation is in a land of plenty. Three lost lives in four years. Tiny, thready heartbeats, blue hands, and then, miraculously, a baby who's arrived, Sophie. There were sad little ghosts caught in the wood grain of that chair, and they were good, but there were good memories, too. Oh, sorry, just yawned. Maybe you should take Sophie to Paris, he said as she sat up. Julian would look out for you. My father made his opinion on living with his daughters quite clear. I cannot expect a welcome from him. Vianne pushed the mad lace coverlet aside and rose, putting her bare feet on the worn rug. Will you be all right? Sophie and I will be fine. You'll be home in no time anyway. The mag- Maginot, ma- I forgot how I was saying it earlier. Maginot line will hold, and Lord knows the Germans are no match for us. Too bad their weapons are. I took all of our money out of the bank. There are 65,000 francs in the mattress. Use it wisely, Vian. Along with your teaching salary, it should last you a good long time. She felt a flutter of panic. She knew too little about their finances. Antoine handled them. He stood up slowly and took her in his arms. She wanted to bottle how safe she felt in this moment, so she could drink it of it later when loneliness and fear left her parched. Remember this, she thought, the way the light caught in 
and his unruly hair, the love in his brown eyes, the chapped lips that had kissed her only an hour ago in the darkness. Through the open window behind them, she heard the slow, even clop-clop-clop of a horse moving up the road and clattering of the wooden wagon being pulled along behind. That would be Monsieur Quillian on his way to market with his flowers. If she were in the yard, he would stop and give her one and say it couldn't match her beauty, and she would smile and say, merci, and offer him something to drink. Vianne pulled away reluctantly. She went over to the wooden dresser and poured tepid water from the blue crockery pitcher into the bowl and washed her face. In the alcove that served as their wardrobe, behind a pair of gold and white tulle curtains, she put on her brassiere and stepped into her lace trimmed drawers in a garter. She smoothed the silk stockings up her leg, fastened them to her garters, and then slipped into a belted cotton frock with a squared yoke collar. When she closed the curtains and turned around, Antoine was gone. She retrieved her handbag and went down into the hallway to Sophie's room. Like theirs, it was small, with a steeply pitched timbered ceilings, wide plank wooden floors, and a window that overlooked the orchard. An ironwork bed, a nightstand with a hand-me-down lamp, and a blue painted armoire filled with, to fill the space. Sophie's drawings decorated the walls. Vianne opened the shutters and, looked, and let fl- light flood the room. As usual in the hot summer months, Sophie kicked the coverlet to the floor sometime in the night. Her pink stuffed teddy bear, Bibi, slept across her cheek. Vianne picked up the bear, staring down at its matted, much-petted face. Last year, Bibi had been forgotten on a shelf by the window as Sophie moved on to newer toys. Now Bibi was back. Vianne leaned down to kiss her, kiss her daughter's cheek. Sophie rolled over and blinked awake. I don't want Papa to go, Mama, she whispered. She reached out for Bibi, practically snatched the bear from Vianne's hands. I know, Vianne sighed. I know. Vianne went to the armoire where she picked up the sailor dress that was Sophie's favorite. Can I wear the daisy crown Papa made me? The daisy crown laid crumbled on the nightstand. The little flowers wilted. Vianne picked it up gently and placed it on Sophie's head. Vianne thought she was doing all right until she stepped into the living room and saw Antoine. Papa, Sophie touched the little daisy crown uncertainly. Don't go. Antoine knelt down and drew Sophie into his embrace. I have to be a soldier and keep you and Maman safe, but I'll be back before you know it. Vianne heard the crack in his voice. Sophie drew back. The daisy crown was sagging down the side of her head. You promise you'll come home? Antoine looked past his daughter's earnest to Vianne's worried gaze. We, oui, he said at last. Sophie nodded. The three of them were silent as they left the house. They walked hand in hand to the, up the hillside to the gray wooden barn. Knee-high golden grass covered the knoll and lilac bushes as, be, as big as hay wagons grew along the perimeter of the property. Three small white crosses were all that remained in the world in this world to mark the babies Vianne had lost. Today, she didn't let her gaze linger there at all. Her emotions were heavy enough right now. She couldn't add the weight of those memories to. Inside the barn sat their old green Renault. When they were all in the automobile, Antoine started up the engine, backed up out of the barn, and drove on browning ribbons of dead grass to the road. Vianne started, stared out the small dusty window, watching the green alley valley pass in a blur of familiar images. Red tile roofs, stone cottages, fields of hay and grapes, finely treed forests. All too quickly, they arrived at the train station near Tours. The platform was filled with young men carrying suitcases and women kissing them goodbye and crying again. A generation of men were going off to war. Again. Don't think about it, Vianne told herself. Don't remember what it was like last time when the men limped home, faces burned, missing arms and legs. Vianne clung to her husband's hand as Antoine brought their tickets and led them onto the train. In the third-class carriage, stiflingly hot, people packed in like marsh reeds. She sat stiffly upright, still holding her husband's hand with her handbag on her lap. At their destination, a dozen or so men disembarked. Vianne and Sophie and Antoine followed the others down a cobblestone street into, into a charming village that looked like most small communes in terrain. How is it possible that war was coming and that this quaint town with its tumbling flowers and crumbling walls was amassing soldiers to fight? 
Antoine, tug- Antoine tugged at her hand, got her moving again. When had she stopped? Up ahead, a set of tall, recently erected iron gates had been bolted into stone walls. Behind them arose a temporary housing. The gates swung open. A soldier on horseback rode out to greet the new arrivals, his leather saddle creaking at the horse's steps, his face dusty and flushed from heat. He pulled on the reins, and the horse halted, throwing its head and snorting. An aeroplane droned overhead. You men, the soldier said. Bring your papers to the lieutenant over there by the gate. Now, move. Antoine kissed Fianne with a gentleness that made her want to cry. I love you, he said against her lips. I love you too, she said, but the words that almost seemed so big, that always seemed so big, felt small now. What was love when putting up against war? Me too, Papa, me too, Sophie cried, flinging herself into his arms. They embraced as a family one last time until Antoine pulled back. Goodbye, he said. Vianne couldn't say it in return. She watched him walk away, watched him merge into the crowd of laughing, talking young men, becoming indistinguishable. The big iron gate slammed shut, the clang of metal reverberating in the hot, dusty air, and Vianne and Sophie stood alone in the middle of the street.